All right, so for some time we've been looking at Revelation 20, this sixth and final of the cycles in Revelation before we get to the penultimate picture and vision of the new heavens and new earth, which we will be really just one, one or two weeks removed from getting there. And so that is really exciting as we start bringing the book here to a close. And today we look at verses 7 through 10 of chapter 20, which now brings us to the end of the era of proclamation or the gospel age as we know it. This millennial reign where Jesus has been reigning from heaven in glory, expanding his kingdom into all nations and peoples through the proclamation of his word, the gospel, throwing down the powers of darkness gathering his people. But as we saw this morning, the the reality of the word is that not only does it throw out darkness, it repels. It makes darkness angry. The same word that redeems also hardens. And so as the word is going forth in victory, at the same time, it's not making a lot of friends along the way. And this is the part of the reality of the parable of the wheat and the tares. But before we read Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10... I want to begin with this verse, this single verse out of Isaiah 27, and then we'll flip back over to Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, gives us a picture of the day of the Lord, the day when the ultimate redemption of the Israel of God will come. And it begins this way, Isaiah 27, 1, In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Let's look at that now in Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations and are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So like I said, we've we've seen this scene several times in Revelation already. The final battle, the gathering of the nations against the church where ultimately those unbelieving nations led by the beast, the false prophet, are thrown down. But in this final cycle, the focus now is ultimately on the one behind it all, the dragon himself. So much of this is going to be repeated of what we've already heard, but it's Always good that we're reminded of of what's going on, when this is taking place, and more importantly, of the absolute, undefeated, flawless victory of Jesus that we see here in this picture. Now, we're told that at the end of the 1,000 years, now for the past two uh, times we've been together, we have reiterated uh, that this 1,000 years refers to this covenantal period, the new covenant kingdom of the Lord expanding throughout And now at the end of it, we see that Satan is released. Remember, what was he bound from back in verses 1 through 3? He was bound from deceiving the nations. He wasn't bound in the sense that he cannot act at all within the world. 
He can't do anything. He can't tempt or anything like that. No, that's not what we were told. We were told he was bound from deceiving the nations. Well, deceiving them from what? Precisely what he does in this account, in this text. Deceiving them from gathering together in a unified effort to destroy the people of God, to destroy the church, the gospel movement. Now, it is so key that we understand that this event, whenever the Lord chooses to finally release Satan to allow for this gathering to take place against the church, this will not happen until the testimony of the church is complete. It will not be till the fullness of Christ's people have been gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation that this will happen. We see that from a couple of places. First, in Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The goal there, the key there, in the midst of that very somewhat horrifying picture that we get of Matthew 24. The picture that we get in there is ultimately one of victory for the church. The testimony will go into all the world, and then the end will come. We also saw this in Revelation chapter 11, when we looked at the two witnesses, which we argued was a picture, a symbolic picture of the church. And notice when the witnesses are allowed to be conquered by the world around them. Revelation 11 verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So the clear testimony of Scripture is that the end will not come. This war, unified war against the church will not happen until its mission is complete. That should give us a lot of hope. And a lot of the glorious reality is that when it's all said and done, the church is victorious. Its mission is victorious. We will do exactly what God has willed for us to accomplish. It's un, it's not, it, it can't be stopped. It's unthwartable. This is his will and his purpose for his church to go and to gather every single piece of his bride from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and then the end will come. When the testimony is complete, then the beast rises up to make war. Then the dragon is released to, to, to guide the beast and the false prophet to bring about this mass deception and to lead a unified effort against the people of God, which will only serve to unify the enemies of God so that they can behold the judgment of God. That's why this will be for just a little time, Revelation 20 verse 3 said. So let's look at this now at the end of the age. As we look ahead now, we look future as to what will happen. We see here the devil released. He is released to what? To deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth. Now this is important, right? That word four corners of the earth it's simply a symbolic notion of the universality of this deception. This isn't one nation. This isn't just a couple of nations. 
This isn't just, um, you know, NATO or the Allied powers or the Axis powers. No, this is the wicked from all nations are being gathered together. All of them, the four corners of the earth is to note universality that is going to be drawn up, which is why, once again, I have to believe with all of my heart, right, that this is not a battle that takes place after an earthly millennium. Because the, the number of people that we see here, it says, are like the sand of the sea. Meaning that ultimately, the level of apostasy that would occur while you have a glorified Jesus on earth is unimaginable to me. It's just unimaginable. So like we saw in Revelation 19 with the last battle, we're seeing the same thing again. Same story, same picture, just now with Satan in the focus. Revelation 16, 14, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Revelation 19, 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Same picture, same war, just a different way, a different way of looking at it, a different viewpoint, a different focus of what is being told in these recapitulating visions. We are told here that these nations that from all the four corners of the earth are referred to as Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog are simply the names given to the nations which come against the people of God. But I want to read Ezekiel 38-39 for you tonight. We have a shorter message this evening, so read a little bit more scripture. Ezekiel 38 38-39, we see this picture of Gog and Magog coming up against the people of God. Now, what's fascinating is there are some who argue, right, that that first battle that we saw back in Revelation 19 is the picture of Gog, and now this second battle is the picture of Magog. The problem with that is John in Revelation 20 makes clear it's the same vision. Gog and Magog are happening right here. So they're not separate visions. But listen to what we read in this prophecy against Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to Garma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. For after many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, securely all of them. You will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land 
and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to see spoil and carry off plunder to turn your hand against the wasted places that are now inhabited. The people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, and take away livestock and goods to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people are, are Israel are dwelling securely, you will know it. You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O God... I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. We'll stop there. This is what it's all talking about in Ezekiel 38, 39. The Lord is speaking to these enemy armies. He tells them how he's going to put a, a, a hook in their jaw and in their nose and lead them to gather up against his people. I love the descriptions he gives of his people. They belong to unwalled cities. There are no gates. Amongst them, yet they dwell securely. What this is meant to tell you about the people of Israel here, the covenantal people of God, not just an ethnic group, is that they don't belong to a physical nation. They don't belong to an earthly kingdom. That's what it means. They don't have walls. They don't have gates. We're citizens of heaven. We're pilgrims here. That's who he's bringing them up against. He's bringing him these nations, these mighty armies against these pilgrim people who dwell securely. And the Lord says, the reason I'm going to do this, O God, is because on that day I will vindicate my holiness before all peoples. So this is why the gathering's taking place. It's gathering for the purpose of His glory being made manifest. We talked about this a lot this morning in our Bible study on John chapter 11. How, why in the world would Jesus allow Mary and Martha and those there to suffer for a short period, a very short period? It was for the manifestation of His glory. That without that light momentary affliction, the eternal weight of glory of him being revealed as the resurrection and the life would have gone missed. And that's what it is here for the people. Yes, this will be a moment of affliction. Yes, it will be a period of suffering. But it will be for the greatest display of vindication of his holiness that has ever been known to mankind when he comes again in perfect holiness with a single word breathing the enemy into nothing. And so this is why this is happening. One of the great dangers that has happened within the last 100, 150 years, give or take, is people will read Ezekiel 38 and 39, and they'll start trying to figure out which kingdoms represent which modern nation states. That's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. And the reason why it's a waste of time 
is because Revelation 20 is serving to make very clear that the people which are coming up against the people of God, it's not China. It's not Russia. It's not an Axis powers. It's everybody. All the nations, all of the wicked will gather together in covenant being led by the beast and the false prophet through deception by the dragon to go against the people of God. You will never see a world more unified than you will in this moment. Because it will be unified with a singular purpose. Destroy these people who call us out. These people who bear light. These proclaimers of the word of Jesus. And they will come against us and it will look as if we are being trampled out and defeated. We read as we continue going a little bit further, they are being gathered for the battle. They are like the number is like the sand of the sea. Now, remember, Revelation's all about counterfeits. This is the dragon's counterfeit army. Because how many of, our, how many of us are those who belong to the Lord? As many as the sands of the sea. That fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Your offspring will be like the stars of the sky. When we saw Revelation 7, 9, and 10, it says that those who belong to the Lamb are an innumerable multitude which are singing praise to the Lamb. So this is the beast, the dragon. This is his counterfeit army. It says they are like the sand of the sea. They have surrounded the camp of the saints. And we look small in our earthly numbers at this time. But greater is he that is with us than he that is in the world. And what we see here in this picture was actually typified or foreshadowed back in the conquest of Canaan. Joshua chapter 11, verse 1 through 5, we read this. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Maiden, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Achpha, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Navath Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Moran to fight against Israel. All of these battles in the Old Covenant, right? All of these things where the Lord wins with... 300 Israelites, where he does all of these things, where he swallows up the prophets of Baal with with fire from heaven. All of these things serve to point us to another moment, another climactic moment in redemptive history. And it's so important that we see these things. Why are these things repeated over and over in Scripture? When you read through the Bible, you start seeing themes repeated over and over and over again. And it's why? It's because God is wanting to, to be very clear with his people. It's what, one of the aspects we call the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is meant to be clear in the themes that it teaches. And this is one of them. God often allows the enemies of his people to surround them and make his people go, there is no way we're fighting our way out of this one on our own. Exactly. Because then God comes and who gets all the glory? He does. He does. 
This is once again a picture that's happening. So they have marched across the earth, uh, not necessarily literally where people are just all coming to one spot because we've already seen the church doesn't have walls. It's not borders. What this simply means is that throughout all of the earth, there is a singular effort directed towards and against the people of God, wherever they may be, whether it's in America, the Middle East, Asia, Latin America, Africa, there will be a unified effort within those places to to root out and to stamp out this light in the world. But the devil will be defeated. We see this here in verse 9 very clearly as they march across the earth. And we are told in verse 9, that they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So here we're told the army surrounds the church, the beloved city. What is that? It's the same thing. The church is the beloved city. We see this back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, that we, we have received, those who conquer receive the name of the new city of the Lord. And what is the city? The new Jerusalem, which we're going to see a beautiful picture of in Revelation 21 and 22. So the church is the beloved city of the Lord. Why? It's where he dwells. He dwells within us. And so it has surrounded the church. We look defeated, but just as things look terrible, just as if it looks as if it is all over for us, as if there is no hope left, A trump shall sound and Christ shall return. And in a singular moment, his people will not only be caught up with him in the glory, but with all of his holiness, he will pour a blazing fire of judgment upon the earth, consuming them in the judgment that he has come to vindicate the fullness of his holiness. He will speak And they will be consumed by the fire of His holiness in a single moment. His glory will be made manifest as this takes place. Now, I could have went to several places in the Old Testament where we'd see fire coming down and consuming the enemies of God. I thought of the prophets of Baal and others. But there's one other incident that I find very interesting. And I want to submit it to our own uh, consideration here. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10 through 15. It's Elijah here again, but listen to the story. Elijah has the armies of Syria coming up against him, and they're coming in, 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 in groups of 50. And little by little, the Lord is just swallowing up with fire from heaven. So, but Elijah answered the ca- captain of 50, right? If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said to him, um, another captain of 50 with his 50. And answered him and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. I love this. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life 
of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to, be the, to the king. The reason I chose this one is for a number of reasons. One, because I just love this back and forth with Elijah that he's always having. So they're sending up 50 and little by little, hey, if I'm the man of God, you're going to get consumed with fire. Boom, they're consumed with fire. It happens first 50, second 50. Now the third captain comes up and he's a smart captain. He immediately falls to the knees of Elijah and he pleads for mercy. Please look to the life of me and these 50 servants of yours. And the reason why I love that is because the Lord grants him mercy. Mm -hmm. The Lord doesn't consume him with fire. The reason why I love that because it's very important to know every single soul who truly repents and comes to Christ for mercy will receive it. So, that, so everyone here at the end that's consumed, it will be a fully unrepentant crowd. Remember how many times we saw through those other cycles and they would not repent. Had they, the Lord would have stayed His hand of, of judgment upon them. They would be amongst His people. But they would not. And those who will not repent, who will not be like that wise captain who says, I got no chance. Please spare my life. They don't have a chance to stand on the day of judgment. And they will be consumed by fire along with the dragon that they so desperately followed. There are a lot of passages in the New Testament that give us this clear picture where wicked man rises up led by the dragon to gather up nations against the people of God. The people of God are afflicted, yet in that moment of affliction, the Lord bolts out of heaven by the breath of His mouth, destroying all of His enemies at one time. There's a lot of that, and that's why we've got to let the simple passages of Scripture help us in interpreting the difficult ones. But I want to give you two ones that are often brought up that are very clear. First, uh, both of them out of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. Paul writes, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as, well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So what's he coming for? He's coming to inflict vengeance upon all those who will not believe. Then the very next chapter, Paul continues the same picture of what is going to happen. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is 2 Thessalonians 2. 
and are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. That is the beast. And do and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way who's being restrained the dragon right now that's that's the binding of satan 1 through 3 he is being restrained from what unleashing the lawlessness the lawless one against the people of god Verse 9, or excuse me, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's Revelation 20. It's right there. That is what, what Paul just taught in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to 2 is Revelation 20 to a T. Satan is currently being restrained from preventing the lawless one to come forth in all power and might to gather the kings of the earth against the people of God. However, once he who is being restrained is let loose, he will raise up the man of lawlessness and with it the false prophet who will work false signs and wicked things that will cause the world who have been sent a strong delusion by God to go after them. And why are they under such a strong delusion? Because they would not believe, Paul says. They would not believe, and therefore now they are subject to delusion. And they will, be in, they will receive the just condemnation of the holy vindication of Christ when He returns. But the focus here, right now, is the devil. We see the devil judged, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast... And the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here we see him thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur. This is Gehenna. This is that eternal place of torment, both spiritual and physical torment, which takes place forever and ever. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So this is the place, the dwelling place for all eternity, where Satan will be rendered in absolute and utter torment by the Holy One of glory. And this is so important, because one of the weird pop culture concepts that have developed over the past few years is this idea that Satan and the demons are the one inflicting the torment. 
in hell. That couldn't be further from the truth. Do you know who inflicts the torment in hell? The Holy One of God. Christ pours out His vengeance and wrath on all those in hell. And for all eternity, they will drink the cup of His wrath over and over and over again. And as we will see for those who had a chance to repent in this life, their judgment will be worse. Why? Because the light that was available to them. We'll talk more about that next week at the great white throne judgment. The devil himself will be tormented. He will not be an agent of torment. He will be the one tormented himself. Him and the beast and the false prophet. Here they are. And this is what the picture of Revelation 20 verse 7 through 10 is. The false trinity... The dragon, the beast, the false prophet has met its end. And what is its end? Eternal torment, day and night, forever and ever. If you choose to follow wickedness, this is your end. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, we are told in Revelation 14, 11. This rids us of any view of annihilationism. That is to say that when Christ comes and that, that picture of consuming fire comes down, that people are just wiped up and that's it for them. No. They will face judgment. And right now we see those, that false trinity. And all of those who are going to be at the great white throne judgment will behold the judgment of those they followed, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, so that they will see on the day of the great white throne judgment themselves just how just their condemnation is as the ones they chose to follow now burn in the place where they will burn forever with them. Forever and eternal torment. And brothers and sisters, there isn't a word that I could give that is severe enough to match what it will be. The spiritual torment will be far and extensionally worse than anything physically that takes place there. I cannot imagine to know what a, what a, a soul, a spirit, which is pierced without ceasing is like. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And never being able to escape from it. This is what awaits Satan. And brothers and sisters, he knows it's what awaits him. Which is why he is so violent. It's why he is such a ravenous foe. Because he knows the hell that awaits him. And he wants to make as many of our lives as hell as possible along the way. He is a beheaded serpent. He was beheaded at Calvary. But if you've ever cut off the head of a snake, have you seen how violently they thrash afterwards? That's precisely what you are seeing with Satan today and especially at the end. 
you are seeing the violent thrashing of a serpent who is bleeding out to his last day. He has lost. And his defeat will be complete and final. And you know why this is such a joyful thing, brothers and sisters? The eternal torment of Satan. It means that he can never tempt us again. It means that when the new heavens and new earth are established, it'll never be messed up again. It'll never be lost again. All of the forces of darkness, sin, Satan, and death, we'll see next week, will be utterly cast into eternal hell forever. Forever separated from inflicting sorrow on the people of God ever again. And that is, ought to give us a lot of hope and joy. And it is why it will be better in the end than it will in the beginning. Satan will be defeated. And so we hear the closing words of Paul's letter to Romans. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He will crush Satan once and for all. He will do it. And so with those realities in mind of the absolute and utter defeat of Satan tonight, the picture that he will be completely destroyed and judged forever by the King of glory. Here are two things that we need to remember as we leave here in light of this. We have seen the period now, this period of Christ's reign. We've seen what that looks like with victory over demons like we saw this morning with His Word. And we saw the final victory tonight of demonic power and forces with the the destruction of the devil. So here's two things. First, stop forgetting that you're on the winning side. It is so easy to grow just, just almost a sense of hopelessness at times. It can be um, despairing. You can feel exasperated by the death and the destruction and the loss and the wickedness. I mean, I, we were just watching a show and there was two commercials that came on that just was like, you got to be kidding me, man. I mean, one, I'll give you one. There was one that it was a commercial for HIV medication. And the whole commercial was just a bunch of homosexual partners. I thought, what a great way to promote yourself. That just goes to show you the folly of sinfulness. To promote nothing in this commercial but homosexual lifestyles to promote an HIV medication. A medication which there is no cure and which will bring surely your death. But go ahead and live out your love. It's so easy to look at this stuff and and get so frustrated and sometimes to feel your own battles with sin and and, and your own shortcomings and and all of a sudden lose sight of the fact I belong to the winning side in Christ. I have victory already. I live in victory. I walk in victory. So stop forgetting that. That should give you the confidence when you go into evangelism. 
that when every door shut, it in no way shut the victory. When every person is like, no, I'm not okay. I'm not interested in hearing that. Okay, God bless you. You planted a seed. Every time you are condemned for preaching truth, you could lose 3,000 battles in this life. You've won the only one that matters in Christ. You're on the winning side. So live like it. Fight the fight of faith with this end in mind. Satan loses. He's already lost, but like he loses, loses. There's not even a chance. He's done for. All of darkness, every power which can lead men astray will be completely and forever done for. So fight the battle with the end in mind. We get the glorious reality of the army of Christ to go fight every day already knowing the outcome. No one else can boast that. We get the joy of living in a spiritual war where we already know the certain outcome, both individually and corporately. So live with joy. Live with boldness and passion. I, one of the things oftentimes that you'll see in movies, uh, a lot of times, especially the Civil War, the Civil War is really kind of the last um, straight on uh, people fighting in, in ranks lined up across the field from one another. That's really the last of the pre-modern wars that we, we fought here on our turf. And oftentimes when you watch movies like that or movies of the revolution or any of other of those kind of pre-modern battles, one of the things that you'll see happen, and this was very common, is that whenever the enemy would sound the horn of retreat, they would press all the harder, right? They, we got, they're on the run, boys. Go get them, right? You would never be like, all right, they're gone. We're good. Let's not. No, their lines are broken. They're, they're defeated. Their morale is down. Now is the best time to pursue and get as many of them as we can. Because those we don't get now, we're going to have to fight tomorrow. Right? So if we got them on the run, if they're a defeated foe, now's the time to press all the harder. We've got to take that same mindset to the spiritual warfare. Our enemy is lost. It is constantly on retreat. The only reason it isn't been on retreat is because, like I talked about this morning, we started to fight a defensive war as the church. And when you fight a defensive war, it gives the enemy opportunities to counterattack and launch attacks back at you while you just kind of sit in place. We are not fighting a defensive war. The attacks that we take to the enemy are not just a bunch of counterattacks. We should be constantly going after them and saying, boys, they're on the run. We have to fight with the reality the victory's won and certain and sure. And we're going to get to go home soon. But that home is glory. So fight on, brothers and sisters. Fight with this end in mind. Fight knowing your enemy is in retreat, a defeated foe. And when all is said and done, King Jesus wins. What a glorious hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word.
We thank you so much for the truths in it. We thank you for time and time again showing us in Revelation this glorious hope that even in what seems to be the darkest hour of humanity for the church, when all of the world seeks to be pressing against us and coming against us at the end of the age, it will be but for a short while. But that short while of suffering will only be working for us an eternal weight of good and glory so that when you come out of heaven in that moment, to, to rescue your bride from all of its enemies. It will be a scene of holiness and power and vindication which has not yet been seen by the eyes of men. And we will behold you in your glory and we will sing your praises forever as the one who rescued us, vindicated us, redeemed us as you brought forth your plan of cosmic redemption, retribution. And as we will see in just a few weeks, restoration. Lord, help us fight daily with the end in mind. Help us fight daily in the reality that we are more than conquerors, that we are dragon slayers, each and every one of us who have been called to wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to the enemies, to go against the strongholds of darkness in this world, a stronghold that is constantly on retreat if we will but put them there, if we will but press them with the Word of God. God, I believe in the victory of the Word. I believe in the victory of Christ. I believe in the power and authority of your Word to overcome all darkness. And so, God, I say, embolden your people. Strengthen us as soldiers. Dress us in your holy armor and press us forward into the fight, knowing that victory is just on the other side of the mountain. So let us march on, God, looking to you day by day, knowing that when the battle's all said and done, there isn't a single one of us that won't make it home in Jesus. And we say it in his precious and holy name. Amen.